You're listening to Ingenuism's Silicon Valley Examined, where we delve into how the tech industry is helping create progress at the speed of thought. I'm Dom Watkins. With me, as always, is Robert Hendershot. All right, Robert. So, what are the things we've been writing about and talking about behind the scenes is the relationship between the stock market and ingenuism. And if you think about ingenuism as focused not on kind of every aspect of production, but on the things that drive progress forward, so issues of invention and innovation, it's obvious and there's a reason i think we started talking about the role of venture capital as kind of the financial lifeblood that fuels innovation because you have angel investors you have venture capital who are kind of at the starting point of new companies trying to do something big and kind of game changing and the most obvious kind of role of the stock market there is sort of like to give people an exit, right? So it's this is how you get paid off your successful venture capitalists. And so one of the questions that I raised to you and that we were talking about is, well, is there anything else? Is, you know, the, is there any ongoing value to progress and to innovation supplied by the stock market? So how do you think about kind of the basic relationship between public stock markets, and innovation. Well, giving people an out is important, and it's not just for the VCs. Uh, the way VCs are structured are as partnerships, so VCs are not investing their own money, at least the majority of it's not their own money. They have their own investors. Those investors have their own needs and goals. And so the partnership is set up to invest over a period of years, say five and then to tail off investing and start collecting the proceeds from those investments. And a lot of them are going to go to zero, so you need to have some very large exits in order for the math to work out. And the investors are life insurance companies or pension funds or endowment funds. They're people who have their own uh, liabilities behind them, so they need to produce returns, and it all has to, to work as a smoothly oiled machine. But that, that itself is less important, I think, than the fact that you also have to give the people who are going to dedicate years of their lives a, a chance to really benefit from the success of the company. So there has to be some end game. Now, it doesn't have to be the NASDAQ or the NYSE. It could be that there, were, there would be funds who would buy more mature technology companies and run them and and then either flip them or you know collect the profits there could be and there is a market for selling startup companies to larger peers their competitors that might want to integrate things like instagram or whatsapp into facebook and so it doesn't have to be the public stock market, but the public stock market is historically been the source of the most, uh, the most invest opportunities for exits, the most big opportunities for exits. Uh, and so that in itself would be a reason for the stock market to exist, just to give investors a chance to recycle their capital, to give entrepreneurs and early employees a chance to benefit from the sacrifices they make in building the company. And then finally, 
you have the opportunity for the company to raise additional capital that we've talked about how that's less important but all that is is complemented by the fact that the stock market gives us a sort of cloudy crystal ball into what's important in the world today and what's expected to be important going forward because all of these these folks that are making the decisions that drive innovation and progress in the Silicon Valley ecosystem the entrepreneurs the VCs the the folks that give the VCs their money they all are doing it based on payoffs that are highly uncertain and are going to come 5, 10, maybe even 15 years in the future. So having a signal for what the future is likely to value turns out to be really valuable when you're trying to make those decisions. Well, yeah, so the idea is supposed to be that, you know, the stock market so, I mean, if you, you know, look at the kind of financial statements of a company, you can see, okay, this is how they're doing this year. They sold this many widgets and it cost them this much and so on. And what the stock market is supposed to be doing is kind of telling us, well, how's this going to play out long term by the best available uh, information and by the best available judgment of the people involved in the market? But, I mean, just to caricature the kind of devil's advocate point here, you know, the stock market really doesn't seem to be giving that much great information. The price is always jumping around, you know, right now we've had bubbles galore, particularly if you think, you know, the internet uh, boom and bust in the late nineties. And, um, you know, if you look today, the, which we mentioned, I think in our last newsletter, um, you know tesla and even a new ev company i'm i'm going blank in their names uh that just went public rivian rivian you know they're valued more than the major automobile makers and so far from like giving us good information about the future like yeah it's a cloudy crystal ball but man is it ever cloudy so what's your kind of take on um like to what extent is do we really can we really have confidence you know, that the stock market is giving valuable information about the future versus, look, it's just subject to kind of trends and fear of missing out and all kinds of, you know, psychological baggage that people have when they try to make money. Well, it definitely has all of that baggage. Uh, there's no question. Uh, it's become really obvious in the last couple of years that, uh, certainly the current results of uh, what's, what's going on in, in companies doesn't always drive the stock price. And so you could think of that as being a really strong evidence that the stock price doesn't tell you very much. But you can also flip it around and say, well, well wait a minute, if the stock market's not based on what's happening today, then what is it based on? Now, if it's all just random, if it's if it's one big casino, then no, there's no information. Just like if uh, you know the um, the roulette wheel spins a 16, that doesn't tell you anything about what the roulette wheel is going to spin next. But there's no reason to think that, and you can. I think that's a fair statement because one, you have investors that take the time and put the effort into figuring out where they want to be in the market. 
And people who are good at that, uh, you know, the people like Warren Buffett are consistently rewarded. And then second, you don't have a house that is uh, continually uh, skimming money off of the activity in the casino. You actually have investors making money on average. So something has to be going on that's real uh, or we're in the you know, midst of a 150-year bubble, which I guess is always possible. But if you look at the, the progress that we've seen over the past 150 years, it's easy to justify the kind of wealth that has been created. We're all much better off, and the fact that, that stocks are a lot more valuable, well, that's, that's consistent. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword, and I'm not saying that there are no weird things that happen in the stock market. Weird things happen in the stock market all the time. But normally, during you know, in the typical stock, in a typical time, it's pretty easy to see the link between what's really happening in these companies, what's really happening with their products, what's really happening in their markets, and the prices in the stock market. So it's fun to talk about the exceptions, but we have to remember that they are the exceptions, that the rule, particularly for widget companies where the market is well-defined, the technology is well-understood, and the trajectory is pretty well-defined, uh, the stock market is a very good indicator of what's going to happen next. It's not backwards-looking, it's forward-looking, and when it's relatively easy to, to make a, a prediction and to aggregate those predictions, prices are pretty well-behaved. And then you have the alternatives, and this is, of course, the most interesting companies, companies that are doing really ambitious things, that are spending years or even decades trying to perfect some new technology that could potentially make a huge difference in the world. You know, they're spending all this time chasing mRNA vaccines. And then those companies end up having the most volatility. And that's actually consistent with the crystal ball analogy. It's just that when you have a very cloudy crystal ball, you end up being surprised, both good and, and bad. Maybe you could step back and just... Um I mean, for you know, some of the people listening, they probably have a pretty good grasp of sort of the mechanics of the stock market, um, but a lot of people don't. And so, how, if you want to give us like a quick primer on, you know, what is even establishing prices in the stock market, um, and maybe you want to break it down into kind of time scales. Well, the stock market is a really cool engine for aggregating opinions and discovering. Uh, what I'm going to call as prices. Um, the way the stock market works is that there are always people coming to the market. They're coming to sell stock. They're coming to buy stock. They have their own reasons and they have their own opinions about what kind of price they'd be willing to pay or what kind of price they'd be willing to accept. Now, even though there are people always coming to the market, they don't always show up at the exact same time wanting to buy and sell the exact same number of shares. So just like in any market, you have intermediaries. You don't go to the store and look around for someone who's selling lettuce. The store buys lettuce and then it marks it up and it sells lettuce to people when they show up and it takes the risk of the lettuce not being sold and the lettuce ending up you know, wilting or rotting. In the stock market, it's a little bit easier because there's no wilting or rotting, although you know things can get worse for a company and for a stock while it's in inventory. But you have these same, these same intermediaries. 
that are when if you go to the market and you want to buy a stock they'll sell you the stock and then they'll wait however long it takes for someone to come in uh, looking to sell the stock so they can buy it back so they they're playing that role of making sure that people who want to trade who want to buy or want to sell have someone to buy or sell with uh, and what we call that is providing liquidity but that's happening at very high frequency at with very low cost because so many people are coming to the market all the time you could imagine a, a world where if everyone came to the same market somehow to buy their lettuce there would always be someone looking to buy lettuce at the same time that there's someone looking to sell lettuce or at least within a minute or two in the stock market we don't wait that minute or two but it's effectively happening that i come in looking to buy a stock and then you don you sell it to me and the question is really what's the price the intermediaries play a role in determining the price but it's very small compared to if a bunch of people are coming in looking to buy stock and there aren't very many people who are interested in selling the stock the price adjusting to balance that out so in the end what the stock market is really doing is is finding a price where there are as many people who are interested in selling the stock as there are people who are interested in buying the stock. It's always keeping those flows in balance. And so how does how does it change, if the things are out of balance, how does it change the market so it goes into balance? It just changes the price. If we're looking to buy IBM and there's someone else who's looking to sell IBM, we could just buy the IBM stock from them. But if we're looking to buy IBM and a bunch of other people are looking to buy IBM and there's nobody out there who's actively looking to sell out IBM, the price of IBM will have to rise until those sellers are, are willing to come into the market. And that's what the market is doing because the orders are coming in, both buy and sell all the time, and they need to be in balance. So the market is a mechanism to find the price that keeps those orders in balance. So in that description, which is helpful, it's notably absent, um, or let's say we haven't yet answered the question of why are some people, you know, why are a bunch of people coming looking for a certain stock? Why are they willing to pay more for it? And, um, you know, what a, and, and therefore what kind of information is communicated by those choices? So if we're saying that the stock market is communicating information, and yet all we have so far in the story is that you know, there's buyers and sellers, and sometimes there's more buyers than sellers, and the price changes accordingly. Uh, how do we how do we connect that story to this larger story about kind of the prospects of a company or an industry? That's a great question because in the short term, people are doing what they're doing for whatever reason they're doing it. We're talking about individuals coming to the market in any moment, trying to predict what any individual is going to do or why they're doing it is really, really hard. So in the short term, you have a lot of volatility that doesn't seem to be related to the distinct prospects of the company, how many widgets it's selling or what is happening to the price of widgets or the cost of making widgets. But if you move out into the intermediate term uh, and you know the, the short term is what's going on this minute, the next minute, the next minute, the intermediate term is what's going on this week, what's going on this month, what's going on this quarter. 
as you move out to the intermediate term and a lot of the vagaries of the short term average out, then you start to see this really strong connection between how the company is doing and what's happening to its stock price. But you also have a bigger and even bigger in a lot of cases an even bigger component that is how is the sentiment for how the company is going to be doing in the future changing at the same time that we see actual results. And now actual results are often correlated with expectations about the future. You know, we're all wondering if inflation is going to keep going up and people's expectations of inflation have been rising along with the inflation rate. And you'll often see people's expectations of a, a particular company's success in the future rise as it demonstrates success in the present. But those, those components are much more relatable to which company is doing better, which company is expected to do better, and then that produces a signal that helps inform investors' decisions. You know, if a, if a widget company is, are, are making a lot of money right now, then it makes sense for us to invest in a new widget company unless the stock market is, is discounting the future and not moving a lot despite the profits now because they don't expect it to continue going forward. So you, you know, in a, in a more specific example, um, with oil prices going up, oil stocks are going to rise because oil companies own oil and they make more money when oil prices are higher. And the rise is going to be smaller than it would have been 10 or 20 years ago because there's a general expectation that there's there are going to be uh, a push over time to reduce the amount of fossil fuel that's consumed, reduce the amount of oil that's used, even if it's available and it becomes attractive. Sorry, I don't know what burst into my computer there. That's fine. I think uh, we're still good on my end. Okay. So anything you wanted to add to that point? No, let's uh, just move to the next. Okay. So then, I mean, there's one other factor that I want to bring in just so that like the whole story is clear. So, um, you know, in, in that kind of picture, there's kind of changing estimates about the prospects of different companies. That's, leading to that's kind of driving the decisions of buyers and sellers in the market and yet overall what we're what we see is you know the kind of long-term trend of the stock market is always one way which is up and so like how does that part fit into the story well that is where the stock market links to ingenuism because the stock market is a good representation of the principles of ingenuism, uh, particularly uh, over time. It's become more and more a clearinghouse for information and opinions so that we can discover what the actual expectations about value are. And then the stock market is a signal to inform people's decisions when they want to decide where am I going to apply my energy, where am I going to, where am I going to use my ingenuity, what, what is the most and highest valued uh, project for me to, to use my ingen ingenuity on. And so the, the market, it's, and, and Don, I'm, I just sort of blanked on your specific question and I apologize as I was. Well, what I'm trying to get at is that, um, 
you know, we've kind of looked at the story of an individual stock, right? Right. And now I want to think about kind of the trajectory of the market overall. And you get occasional downs, and that's interesting, but you get this kind of overarching trend upward uh, over stretches, over longer stretches of time. And so I want to, uh, I'm curious as to this point about how, you know, the stock market, if, if we're taking it as this is providing us with information, what information is embedded in that longer term overall story of the market? Gotcha. Uh, well, it, it really is an ingenuism story because, you know, over the past 12 years, the market has done phenomenally well. Uh, there was a big downturn uh, with the financial crisis. Uh, but even with that, over the last 20 years, the stock market has done phenomenally well. And if you look back 50 years, you look back, even people have estimated back for hundreds of years, the stock market is a consistent generator of returns. And that is because it's empowering people to apply their ingenuity to interesting and valuable problems. You know, if you think about when you buy stock, you're not giving the NYC or in the NASDAQ, you're not giving the company money so that they can go out and grow the business. Now, indirectly, you are providing someone else with liquidity, and maybe they were someone who gave the company money 10 years ago, and so your willingness to cash them out has, it was important to that whole process. But what's really happening is you're buying the stock from somebody else. But you are buying a fractional ownership of that company. And so if that company improves over time, if it grows, if it, if it uh, innovates and brings out new products and comes up with ways to be more efficient, then the company itself, its operations are going to be more valuable. And that's what drives the long-term trend of the stock market. And it's really beautiful if you think about it, because how else could you personally take whatever money you want to invest for the future and tap into a hundred million people's ideas and ingenuity and passion and energy and all of the innovation that comes out of that. It allows us to connect with all of the great things that other people are doing rather than just invest in, say, a business that we would start. So I want to step back then and kind of think about what does this look like in practice in terms of, all right, so we have this information that um, is sort of one way to think about it is kind of an estimate on the future. Like what is, what is going to be valuable in the future? What's not going to be valuable? Um, but how is that actually feeding into innovation and and? You know, who are the people who are kind of acting on that information? I think you've said a couple things that are relevant to that. You know, certainly um, it's easier for me if my company's worth uh, $100 billion to raise um, capital to undertake new projects or to grow something that looks really promising or whatever. Um, but is there anything else in terms of how this is aiding in our ability to connect, to explore, to discover? Well, it rolls back from the present all the way back to when the company is started. And companies are at, companies in the stock market, publicly traded companies are at different stages. So you have companies like Apple that are very innovative, um, have 
really uh, popular products and are making so much money because of that, that even though they have other opportunities, they'll never, and okay, I shouldn't say never, in no time in the future will they need to ask investors for money. To the contrary, they're giving money back to their investors. I think last year, Apple paid out $7 billion in dividends. Uh, companies repurchased their stock. Uh, just distributing this money to their current investors. And that's, of course, why you'd be interested in, in buying a stock like Apple. Not only does it have great product and great profits, but you're actually going to get money out of that. And so that's the, that's the desired endgame. That's where everybody wants to be, where you don't need the stock market to raise money because you're making so much money. In the intermediate, you have companies like Tesla. Uh, or, or even Amazon from you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Companies that are established are bringing in uh, lots of revenue. They may be even making significant money, but they have opportunities to build their business that cost more than what they're currently able to bring in from their operations. So they continue to raise money, uh, and it's relatively easy, it's relatively cheap for them to get that incremental capital, you know, and, and so we want to distinguish between when Tesla has raised money, uh, which has happened over the last 18 months because their stock price has gone up a lot and they go out and they sell a relatively small number of shares to get a relatively large amount of money and then use that money to continue building their business versus uh, when Elon Musk sells shares. So Elon Musk has been selling shares recently. He had his great titter, Twitter poll uh, where we, everyone voted to have him sell shares. Uh, he has options that are, are coming up to expire, so he needs to exercise them. And, and he's finally, finally Bernie Sanders will be happy because he'll pay taxes on that. Uh, actually, I'm pretty sure Bernie Sanders won't be happy, but that's another story. Uh, and then you you have um, so you have lots of shares being sold, but they're being sold by an investor who is cashing out. In this case, Elon Musk is cashing out of some of his Tesla stock. In that case, the company's not involved at all. It's one investor buying their stock from Elon Musk versus a year ago when Tesla sold shares, they sold 5 billion shares. It was the company selling brand new stock to investors and ending up with $5 billion. So that's the, the intermediate game. Uh, and everybody goes through that stage. You know, Apple is out of it. Google is out of it. Uh, Amazon uh, may be out of it, Tesla is not. But once you get to be a big recognized trillion dollar company, you're generally uh, be getting to be so profitable that you no longer need to tap the capital markets, to tap the stock market in order to get incremental investment dollars. And then you have the very beginners, uh, and, and we're talking about the stock market, so these are public companies, not startups, but sometimes they look a lot like startups. So Rivian is just gone public over the last couple days. Uh, I'm sorry, they went public last Wednesday and we're talking on Tuesday, so almost a week ago. Uh, and the stock has gone up dramatically over the past couple of days. Don, is that me? I don't have any idea. Not hearing anything on my end. Okay, then that's great. Uh, so, 
Rivian is an example of a company that's at the beginning of their public life. They just went public last Wednesday. The stock has been on a tear since then. They raised $12 billion. And Rivian needs every penny of that. Uh, they've got great investors. Uh, Ford is a big investor. Amazon is a big investor. But it's very capital intensive. It's very expensive to build a uh, in this case a truck, but a car, a transportation manufacturer from scratch. And so the stock market plays an essential role in allowing Rivian to access the capital that will presumably justify uh, their, yesterday I think it was $145 billion valuation, or not. You know, they may end up being worth more than Tesla, they may end up being worth being zero. It's, it's a very cloudy crystal ball when you look at the very beginning of this public cycle. With Apple, it's pretty easy to make a, a rough estimate of what the company should be worth. With Tesla, it's harder, but there's still a lot to go on. But with companies that are just gone public or just introducing their products, who are still spending money like crazy, it's very difficult. And if we look historically, there are all sorts of outcomes. You get companies ending up like Apple and Amazon and Tesla and super successful. And you get companies that end up like Webvan and Pets.com and uh, end up bankrupt. They run out of money before they ever figure out the actual business model. And so why was Rivian able to raise $12 billion. Well, you take one look at Tesla and what's happened to Tesla and suddenly it looks like a pretty interesting opportunity to give Rivian money at the IPO price, which was a valuation of around $78 billion, including that 12. So you, you had the opportunity to invest in a company that isn't selling products yet, but could be a dominant player in a business where the current dominant player is worth a trillion dollars. That's what makes it interesting. Without Tesla, I am 100% sure Rivian would have had a much harder time going public and would have gone public if they were able to at a much lower valuation. And how do I know that? Well, look back at when Tesla went public. Their valuation was under $2 billion. Because they were the first, there was no signal saying, hey, everybody, it would be really interesting to invest in an electric car maker. It was completely pie in the sky, speculative, and you know, frankly, much less obvious that the upside was as large as it's turned out to be. Versus today, where Tesla's blazed the path, and now all these other companies, and it doesn't, it's not just Rivian, it's Lucid, it's, there were about five electric transportation companies that went public using SPACs um, in 2020. It's everybody involved in electric transportation and autonomous driving is able to raise money and go public because we've got a clear signal from Tesla on what the potential for the business would be. One further thing that I uh, think is interesting, and I want to know how it fits into how you think about things. So if you take one of the most innovative companies in the last 20 years, Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos has always stressed that, you know, he's not looking at, he's not paying that much attention to Amazon's what's happening day to day in the stock market. And so insofar as we say this is a source of information, his view is at least on a, on a relatively short time scale, he's not interested in that information. And he wants investors who aren't concerned with 
you know, what's happening with the price today? What are our like, you know, quarterly uh, numbers look like? He's kind of let's focus on the long term. Let's focus on continually getting better at um, giving our customers an amazing experience. And it seemed to have gone pretty well for him. Uh, so how does that fit in that kind of idea that like to be so let me put it in a more um in a more negative way than than bezos does but that somebody might say look the stock market is actually something that it makes us short term and keeps us from engaging in the kind of long-term thinking that we need in order to do stuff that's actually worth doing well it's funny because i completely agree with bezos's sentiment and it it would have been impossible to build Amazon without the you know, relative excitement and optimism that came from their core group of investors. So it's it's a little uh, ironic to have um, CEOs that don't that have been wildly successful at raising capital in business models that were not proven. So where there was enormous speculation that that came out and backed them and allowed them to do these amazing things, uh, at the same time as, you know, to to say, well, we really should ignore it. Uh, And I agree that almost every day you should ignore what's happening in the stock market. Uh, For any given company, there is almost never news that justifies a big change in the stock price. It's just a, a... a swing of sentiment, which there's probably a signal in the noise, but there's a lot of noise. And if you are trying to figure out the signal, uh, you're going to be misled more often than not. Versus the intermediate or even especially the long term where the stock market really does reward performance. So Amazon got got uh, whiptailed all over the place up in the late 90s into early 2000, then just crushed in uh, starting in April 2000 over the next two years, uh, and then slowly has recovered, was still with a a lot of volatility until it became clear that uh, they were going to be a dominant player first in retail and then in eBooks and then in um, cloud computing and in streaming. And and as that's become clear, Amazon, stock price has gone through the roof and it's become one of the most valuable companies in the world and so ignoring the short term makes sense 99 out of 100 times Uh, ignoring the long term is would be a disaster because eventually you have to produce the results that will validate the a high stock price and so you know if the idea is don't get bent out of shape about the stock price today, tomorrow, the next day. I am 100% with that in the absence of there being some new information. Uh, so around earnings or around product announcements, you know, when Amazon ended up not selling very many Fire phones, that was important information. It turned out not to be uh, fatal or even really that big a deal uh, because as long as you have successes and you're trying a lot of ambitious things and as long as you some of them work out the failures are just part of the process to discover the the big successes Uh, but at that point 
when there's real information coming out, then the stock market is a, a very strong indicator of what the bottom line is for that new information. It's just not, you, it's, it doesn't happen most days. It doesn't happen for most companies on any given day, and it doesn't happen uh, for any company on uh, a daily basis. So, Don, how many times do you think in the last two years Tesla stock has gone up or down 10% in a single day? Three. And that would be very reasonable, that, that there would only be a few days a year maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, but only a, a very small number that enough news would come out to drive a company's value up or down by 10%. Because today, 10% move in Tesla is a $100 billion change in the value of the company. There were uh, 28 days in the last two years that Tesla stock went up or down 10%, and they weren't evenly split. There were 10 days where it went down 10% or more, uh, with one day more than 20%, and there were 18 days where it was uh, up more than 10%, with two of those days almost 20%. And there were some days where there was news, but most of those 28 days, it was just a swing in sentiment. Um, and you know, I'm sure that's very frustrating, particularly when stocks go down for CEOs who really believe in what they're doing. But the net effect, you know, first of all, 18 ups and 10 downs means on average you're, you've got more optimism than pessimism on these, these big movement days. And you have the ability to, to fund the transformation of the U.S. car manufacturing industry by virtue of those 18 days. Those are the days that represent when people are really excited about Tesla. And the excitement about Tesla, particularly over the last couple of years, has turned it from a company that in, uh, I guess it was probably seven or eight years ago, was at the cusp of bankruptcy, into a company, an auto manufacturer that's worth more than basically all the other auto manufacturers combined. So one final thing that I want to throw at you, and that is kind of the, you know, the most uh, exciting or at least headline grabbing area for investment right now is in, let's put it broadly, the crypto space. And I think on the face of it, people would say like, well, that's wildly different. Like whatever the virtues of the stock market are and conveying information here like more than likely what we are seeing is speculation on a kind of new kind of commodity. And I wonder if, if you have thoughts on the kind of p parallels and dissimilarities between crypto and the stock market. Well, crypto is really cool. I mean, in part because it's cool, but in part because it, it is so demonstrative of what we've been talking about. Um, because you you don't have you can have use cases, but you don't have any final uh, say in any of their cases of what the eventual uh, source of value is going to be, and that doesn't mean that crypto is worthless. It just means that we're at the very very early stages of a highly uncertain process, and the only analogy I would have it were would be internet companies in the 1990s where. Suddenly you've got this new thing, whether it's the internet and, and commerce on the internet, or whether it's crypto, 
or some, you know, all the derivations of crypto. Uh, you've got this new thing. Uh, there's underlying technology that's brand new. And you have no idea what the final outcome is going to be or what it's going to look like. Everyone thinks, everyone has an idea, but you have no objective idea of what it's going to be. There's widely diverse opinion about how this is going to play out. And so it starts out the same. It's always, uh, there are some initial successes that attract attention and investment and entrepreneurs and ingenuity to the space. Uh, and those successes are often the long-term successes, but in no way are they guaranteed to be. Uh, if you look at the early successes on the internet, uh, companies like Yahoo and eBay, uh, the dominant search engines are all gone. You know, these are, are companies that didn't end up uh, being the leaders. Uh, but Amazon was early and Google was fairly early. Uh, you know, the, some of the early players, the early leaders ended up being long-term dominant players. Uh, but you just don't know. There's a ton of uncertainty, but there's a relatively small number. You've got some evidence that this could be big. You've got stock market evidence or in the analogous uh, crypto market cap evidence that there are people who believe this is really big and it, it takes on a sense of inevitability that you know obviously this is this is going to change the world and then fear of missing out kicks in and uh, people sort of put their skepticism aside and in the market the dynamic is really interesting because in these these cases where there's almost nothing uh, tangible or hard and fast to go on in terms of predicting the future, you end up with, the best way to think of it is you end up with sort of uh, clusters of different opinions. So if you take, let's take Tesla and then we'll go back to, to crypto. Uh, if you take Tesla, uh, particularly today, there, there are sort of three clusters of, of opinion. There are people who are convinced that Tesla is going to dominate the world uh, everyone is going to either drive a Tesla or ride in an, a robo-taxi made by Tesla. They are going to dominate battery technology. That, and that a, a trillion dollar market cap is ridiculously low. So call those the optimists. And of course, they own Tesla stock. They may have borrowed money to buy Tesla stock. They're never going to sell their Tesla stock, at least not until the price goes up another 10x. Uh, they are the true believers. And at the other extreme, you've got the skeptics. And there are a lot fewer of them today than there were 10 years ago. But they're pointing at things like uh, all of the other automakers coming into the market uh, with lots of resources and technology. They're pointing at the, the you know, profit that comes from selling um, pollution credits versus making cars. They have their own justifications for why Tesla's wildly overvalued in a massive bubble and it's going to go down 95%. And uh, then you have the people in the middle who are sort of looking at it as, well, Tesla certainly has proven that they can make great cars, people want to buy them, people are fanatically loyal, and they're wildly expensive as a stock. Um, and so they're, they're sort of more on the fence, and you might call those the realists. You've got the optimists, the pessimists, and the realists. And I'm not saying the realists are right. I'm just saying that they have these clusters. And where you get these big movements, the 20%, the 10% movements in a day, is where the people who are, who are balancing out the, um, the supply and demand in the stock market trading shift from one of those groups to another. So you'll see Tesla go up 20% because instead of realists trading with realists, 
the uh, the company, either the sentiment or the company's announcement, I mean, has an announcement or they sell a ton of cars when they weren't expected to, and suddenly the realists are no longer interested in, in selling or they become optimists, and suddenly you have to see the price go up enough that you can find optimists who will come in and sell. And that's really hard because by definition they're in for the long haul, they're very optimistic. And so you can get these big swings because the key sources of buying and selling shift from optimist to realists or realist to pessimists or pessimists to realists or realists to optimists. Now that doesn't happen very often. Usually you have the realists trading with each other because the pessimists would never buy it and the optimists would never sell it. But occasionally it does and you get these really big price movements. And that's, what, that's what's going on in Bitcoin. You know, there are people who believe Bitcoin is it's inestimable how valuable it's going to be because it's just going to dominate the world, uh, particularly now with the upgrade that allows for it to, to do more things, more like Ethereum. Uh, you know, it's clearly the most established that $66,000 a Bitcoin is a drop in the bucket. It's going to be $66 million because the supply is limited. And, well... That is the true optimist perspective. It's I can tear down all those arguments, not saying they're wrong. I'm saying that they're not obviously right. You know, the price is when I say supply and demand, the supply of bitcoins makes no difference. It's the supply of people who want to to sell bitcoin versus the demand of people who want to buy bitcoin. Uh, so there's lots of reasons that you could uh, argue that the optimists are crazy and the pessimists who are all saying Bitcoin is worthless, it's going to go to zero. There are lots of reasons you can argue that they're crazy. Um, and generally you have the realists trading with each other and every once in a while it, it, it swings one way or the other and Bitcoin will go up 20 or 30% or it'll go down 40 or 50%. You know, these kind of wild market swings are normal in these very early, uh, the very early years of these new interesting sectors. So what happens? Well, what happened with the um, internet boom is you got more and more internet companies created. So you've got this strong signal that the internet's going to be big. You've got Yahoo trading at a hundred billion dollar market cap. You've got all of these reasons to start internet companies, to invest in internet companies, and to take internet companies public. And as long as that is happening, then people are are diving in. the The market signal is so strong, and the opportunity to to be rewarded for building something interesting is so large that you just get enormous influx of interest and activity and you get more and more and more internet companies and it gets harder and harder and harder for all of them to be owned by optimists and in the case of the internet it broke down in april of, of 2020 and you, we had a massive swing a huge swing in april and it continued for another year and it caught up everyone who was trading among the optimists you know cisco uh, the big networking company was by no means um, an internet company, but it went down 80% after the, the the boom peaked because prior to that, it was being traded among optimists and a year later, it was being traded among pessimists. And we still have, we still had companies that, that um, came out of it 
on a trajectory to become the most dominant companies in the world. So Amazon got crushed. Uh, you know, Google was private, but uh, would have gotten crushed uh, because of the, the swing in who was trading the stock. And they still ended up being extremely valuable. You know, Buying Amazon for $3 a share in 2002 would have made you wildly rich. You see the exact same thing happening in crypto. More and more cryptocurrencies being created more and more interesting ideas, more and more diverse opinion, but it's going to be harder and harder for optimists to trade all of these these different currencies, all the different coins. And so you're going to see a bunch of them go away. Now, that's in no way arguing that Bitcoin is, is going to be worth zero or that Bitcoin is going to be worth $100 trillion. You, know, you have both possible outcomes. And the, the really cool thing, and that it's really important to understand when, when you talk about markets, is that both the optimists and the pessimists can end up being right. That's what happened with the internet boom. The optimists who were dead set that Amazon was gonna change the world, they were right. And the pessimists who were saying most of these companies are gonna go bankrupt, including Amazon. Amazon was being, was being uh, ridiculed widely. Uh, ended up being right. Now, nobody ended up being 100% right. Well, Jeff Bezos ended up being 100% right, but, but investors didn't end up being 100% right, but they basically had it right. There was huge value that was going to be created on the internet, and they had it wrong in the sense of they funded a bunch of companies that were going to go bankrupt. And so it would be shocking to me if crypto wasn't following the exact same path, where there's going to be huge value created in some of these these uh, blockchains and some of these cryptocurrencies and a lot of them are going to end up worthless thanks robert be sure to tune in next week and as always the best way to stay in touch is to go to ingenuism.com and sign up for our free weekly substack newsletter talk next time